right. Good morning, everyone. God bless you. Good to be with you. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand and one of the ushers or elders will bring you a Bible. Does anyone need a Bible? And if you don't have a Bible, this is your Bible to keep. The Lord Jesus Christ wants you to have this. But if anyone needs a Bible, okay, good. All right. Well, praise the Lord. Well, we've come as far as verse 35. Last week, the Lord had brought to us in verse 34, he says, And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God, speaking to the fact that when you think about it, you know, the Son of God, that's a title, that, but it also implies or means an image bearer of God. He's saying he is an image bearer of the Father. And again, when you think about this, I was sharing this with first service, it's, I never, I never grow weary of studying these things, of just sort of meditating on these things. But the Lord gave us, obviously, love. He gave us life. And then he turned and found it so good that knowing that our ability to try to comprehend a spirit, God, which is what he is, he sent Jesus. There's two seats up here, if you'd like. He sent Jesus so that we would have this image bearer Right? It's, it's twofold. One, for certainly salvation, but also to be an energy for you and I. And it just, I continuously am just wrecked by how he, he did that. If you look in, in chapter 4, it says in verse 24, God is spirit. And, and that means you and I and all of humanity up to that point had never been obviously able to interact with God the way we would want to interact with another human being, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And God knew that in our hearts and des- our desire for that, and he provided a way, not only for salvation, but for that intimacy and an example of the desire for intimacy that God has with us and for us. He wants that kind of intimacy. And so we are left um, in that passage and I, I just, I'm continuously wrecked. I mean, literally, I don't know about you guys. Sometimes I just read my Bible. Maybe it's early in the morning or later on at night, and I read those passages, and I just, I just begin to weep because I'm just wrecked by the fact that the God of the universe cares so much about you and I or about his creation that he would literally become human to come and dwell with us. I mean, in a few short months, we're going to celebrate Christmas, which is the incarnation. You know, Emmanuel, God flesh dwelling among us. And I never get tired of talking about it. It's wonderful. Well, let's bow our heads. We'll pray and we'll pick up with verse 35 here this morning. Father, we do thank you um, for your kindness, your Lord, your generosity, your peace, your love, your grace upon grace. Lord, you meet us right where we're at. It doesn't matter what we look like, what we've been through. You're so good to us, Lord. And We have a living example in you, Jesus Christ, our God-man. Lord, we pray today that you would touch hearts here and minds, that you would wash us with your word, you would anoint it. Again, you'd bring a peace in the midst of a calamity if there's difficulty in the lives of your people here this morning. You'd slow everything down, Lord. We'd literally hang on every word you have to say, every thought you have that would captivate us. Keep us just marveling, just your goodness, Lord. 
So we pray, God, help us to get out of the way. Help me to get out of the way, Lord. Speak to the hearts this morning. Let us have those supernatural ears to hear what your spirit has to say. Let the words jump off the page into our hearts. Let us never be the same. Never be the same, God. We just, we ask this humbly, Lord Jesus Christ, before you, our, our God, our King, our everything. In your name, Jesus Christ, we pray these things and all God's people pray. Amen. 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 Well, once again, John begins in verse 35 on the next day. Again, grounding us. So this is, if you remember a couple days earlier, he was in the wilderness. He was explaining the voice of one crying in the wilderness, making straight the way of the Lord. And then we see the next day he came and again, John sees him and says, this is the Lamb of God, right? Uh, clearly a pic picture to the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ. And he says, again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following said to them, what do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is translated teacher or Rabboni in the plural, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was until the 10th hour, meaning around 4 p.m. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. That's the Greek. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas or translated a stone, a pebble, possibly a better translation. The following day, Jesus want, wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, in the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him to whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said, can anything good come from Nazareth. And Philip said, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming in toward him and said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Some of your translations say in whom there is no guile. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree and I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. What a beautiful passage we have before us this morning here. Again, John grounding us chronologically in verse 35. In the next day, two days later, he stood and two of his disciples, and they're looking at Jesus. At this point, John has already declared he's the Lamb of God. No longer is John trying to increase, draw men to himself. I mean, at this point, in some capacity, he's a, a religious leader, even if you might say among the first Christians. He's not drawing men to himself. There should not be a man alive today standing in a pulpit anywhere in the world that is drawing men to themselves. They should always be drawing men and women to Jesus Christ. Yeah. There's no room for man's wisdoms or opinions. We've had enough of that. 
And that includes me standing here. And so he's very clear. He stands up and he said, look, behold, the Lamb of God. Going back to, again, Leviticus chapter 4, verse 20, when you think of the sacrificial system, the one being done by the individual, anyone, the common person, that's Leviticus chapter 4 specifically written to. He's saying the most common, the, the you know, fill in the blank in that aspect, whatever you look like, whatever your social, economic, you know, tie it all in because God's a unifier, not a divider. And he says, this is your sacrifice. And they were well understood in that. They knew that every year in Yom Kippur or Kifer, that they were to have a day of atonement, a day where they would take and they would ask for the sins of the nation, sins for the individual to be transferred to an animal, and then they would be then set right in relationship with God. But it was never meant to be a removal of sin. They always understood it was a, you know, a covering of sin that way. And that's the power of what Jesus Christ does is he doesn't just remove sin temporarily. He knew that we would still sin. He, he knew that. And yet his gift of grace didn't depart. He didn't say, well, you have a little bit of grace. No, he says grace upon grace, truth and love. He's certainly not compromising or saying that we can compromise in sin, but he's, he's teaching us there's more than that to the relationship with Jesus Christ. It's all steeped in love. And that's the problem. I think so often today we miss that, that it's steeped in a perfect love. And so when he says, here's the Lamb of God, what God is saying is, here I am to take the sins of this world. Notice he didn't ever qualify it by deserving people, people that live a good life or do good things. It was never part of any of that. The goodness was always found in Christ and him alone. It's not Jesus plus something. And so he centers that, and they all look to him, and so what happens? Verse 37, two of John's disciples at this point are no longer going to follow John the, uh, John the Baptist. They're now going to turn and begin to follow Jesus Christ, their rightful Savior, God. And it's right so for them to do so. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said, Well, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi teacher. Please, please acknowledge that, that right away they knew, they looked at him and they said, teacher. And what are they saying? Where are you staying? What, what are they really saying? Where are you going? What are you doing? What is this all about? I want to learn from you. They called him teacher. So we know even the way that they began the conversation with him. When you call someone teacher, you are the what? Student. What does disciple mean? You are a learner, a student. And so immediately in the way that they're brokering this relationship, they're already understanding you're the teacher, the master. I'm the slave, the servant, the student, and I'm to learn from you. And so when they're saying, hey, where are you going? Where are you staying? They're not actually asking, where are you just laying your head at night? Or where are you, where, where are you going to make your abode? They were asking him so much more. And what does Jesus say? The same thing he says to you and I today. You want to know? Come with me. Come and see. Follow me. It's faith upon faith. Aren't, if you would have read that he said, okay, I'm going to tell you my three and a half year plan. And it's going to begin at step one because I'm the alpha and, it's, here's the, and I'm the omega and here's the end. And here's what I'm going to do in every step of the way. You and I would go, that's not fair. What about us today? That's not, Lord, we want to know what's going to happen tomorrow, the next day. And 
so on and so forth. But it's really refreshing to see how God does this, that even with the first disciples, it all began with a dependency on Christ, dependency right on Jesus, to not have to know, to not have to understand how this works, not even broker that, not, can I go so far as to say, not even have an opinion, not even have an opinion of what this should look like. But Jesus, all I know is you and you crucified and I'm willing to follow you wherever I go, whatever, wherever you take me, whatever that looks like. That's doulos. That's a bondservant. And that's what he's laying out here. And he says, come and see. In other words, I'm going to reveal these things. Come and see. You're all invited. You're, these things are going to be unveiled or revealed before you little by little. And that's why they're steps of faith. Isn't that good? We don't have to know it all. And I think sometimes if I did know all that God was going to do, I'd run scared the other way. Well, they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him. So certainly there had to do something with physical locale and that day. And it was about the 10th hour. So it's getting a little bit late. It's about 4 p.m. Remember, it's not like they're going to go check into the Alamo or, you know, some type of hotel. They don't have means like that. Well, there was inns you could possibly get where the animals or other people could be kept. Those were probably more easier to find at that time. The reality is, is it wasn't like our modern day environment where we can a lot of times get in our car, set a GPS to a location, and when we start to get sleepy, we can kind of pull off and find a hotel or Motel 6 or so, you know, something like that. They didn't have that that way. So it's around 4 p.m., and Normally, at this point, they're already beginning to think, where are we going to bunk down? Where are we going to shelter? Well, Jesus is just getting started. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah. The very first thing Andrew does, because John the Baptist directed him, here's the Lamb of God is he went to the person that he probably loved dearly. I won't say most, but very, very dearly. And he told him, come and see the one we've been waiting our whole lives for that's going to give meaning and purpose to our lives. Come and see, he's here. Let me tell you about him. And that's John. That, that's, that's real love. That's what he did. He went to Peter, his brother. He says, you got to do that. How, how often did the Christians, I, I always, healthy sheep reproduce. Healthy sheep reproduce. You can't keep it to yourself, the goodness of the gospel, the goodness of what Christ is doing in our hearts. But too often we think, well, there's a room full of a few hundred people. Clearly somebody else can do it. Maybe they'll be the ones that tell somebody about Jesus. Friends, what if Jesus wants to use you? Because I believe he does. And it's not because you're eloquent or have perfect words. It's because you love Jesus and you're an image bearer as well. Because he's the example. He conforms and transforms hearts. We're faithful to give truth in love. And he brought him to Jesus. And now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas. Right? 
I think this is interesting. He uses his Jewish name, certainly. He could have called him Peter right in the beginning, but he says, you're the son of Jonah. I know you. I know everything about you. I knit you in your mother's womb. I know your dad. I know your mom. I know everything you've been through. And that, that had to mean a lot to Peter. I mean, this, this is a rough, these are rough guys. They're fishermen, right? They, in mixed company, we have children. This is not, uh, you know... These are not guys, these guys you'd find in pubs, you'd, 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 I'm using our term today. These are not guys that you would normally want to just go and associate with. They're a little rough around the edges, okay? They're actually my kind of people. But the reality of it is, is that's what he's trying to communicate, is that when he's saying Simon, the son of Jonah, he's, he's saying, I know you, I knit you in your mother's womb, I know everything you think, everything you're about, and I'm calling you. Come unto me. And he turns around and he says, I'm going to call you pebble. I, I know some of our translations say stone. But I'm going to call you little pebble. Now, now I, I, when I meet Peter, right, and I'm looking at him, I'm not, I'm not looking at Peter probably the way he's looking at me. I'm not looking at Peter and going, yeah, a based, I'm, the foundation of the church is going to be laid upon you as that little pebble. Yeah, I'm not looking at Peter and going, you're the guy. At least not until he's been restored after the restoration. Then, okay. But as I'm looking at Peter, I'm thinking of the guy that, you know, insert foot in the mouth, right? And, and I find too many similarities with him, you know, things like that, that. That What did I just say? What did I just do? And then how did I end up here? Lord, once again, you got to help me out. I mean, that's Peter. And yet what Jesus sees is what we all should see in each other in other human beings. Jesus sees the perfected work in Peter that's going to be accomplished by his righteousness through sanctification. You see, we're dealing with an identity crisis here. Partly in the world, because they don't have Jesus, the Christ is the center of their lives. That's, that's right away the problem, right? We get that. That's why they're looking for all these other things to bring comfort or contentment. But even in the house of God, even in the church, even in the body of Christ, there are men and women that still look in a mirror and believe that's their identity, what they see reflecting back at them. They don't look at it the way Jesus looks at them. They have all these other ideas and thoughts of how they fall short, how they're not cute enough or handsome or pretty enough or, or how they're not smart enough or how they don't have enough of this or that or and it's all lies from the pit of hell. And the body of Christ just keeps soaking it up like, like the world has something, or Satan, the world, the flesh, has something to offer us. When we have something so much more marvelous, so much better, doesn't even come close to it. But they're lies, and, and we get so easily distracted, we begin to believe those lies. Meanwhile, Jesus is looking at you and a guy and going, I love you. You are perfect in my sight. You are cleansed and healed. You are whole. It's upon you that I lay this foundation. It's upon you the testimony. It's, it's upon you. You're an image bearer of God. To be seen, to be heard, to be known, and certainly to love. If we'd all just bask and rest in that, 
all the insecurities, all the failures, all the intrepidations and the fears, the anxieties, the sorrows, the depressions, the not good enough, feeling not good enough. Now, I'm not saying, listen, a perfect love like that casts out everything impure. There'd be no room for pride. Nobody would be walking around going, right? There'd be none of that. I don't, and I'm not saying you guys do that, right? Because I... I don't want you to think, you know, the Lord's a supernaturally like. It's just simple. When are we as the body of Christ going to believe that our Father loves us and sees us whole and pure and beautiful? And there's nothing more to be added to it. He finishes the good work and he's really, really in love with us and he's on the throne. And he just wants us to be in love with him and to follow him and to live for him. You see, that's who he sees when he sees Simon Peter. He says, that's the pebble. That's the pebble. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. Why? Was it just out of the blue? He says, you know what? I'm feeling like some Cana. I'm going to go to Galilee today. No. We know, or we will read in chapter 2, he was actually invited to a wedding. Now, I think it's really significant because at that time, a Jewish wedding would last approximately a week. It's, it's not, I, I don't know about you, I think of Jewish weddings, I'm like, oh my, I think of our wedding, right? Maybe some, some of you had weddings, you know, and it, it was a few hours to a day, and uh, you were worn out. I was worn out, right? And all the things, and I, we, we were blessed to be married. We were in New York City. We were at a harbor area. We were able to oversee the water, and it was really, really beautiful. And they had all this food. I didn't get a lick of it, but they had it there. People looked like they were really enjoying themselves. I mean, I was watching them. I, I just, all I wanted was somebody to stick out a fork, like I, and I just walked by. I would have, I'm a content, so no content. I'd have been very happy with that, right? But my wife and I, we laughed. You know, we got, we got uh, our, our, <laughs> We got to the hotel afterwards because we said we're going to go to the hotel. We we're going to fly out. We had a hamburger together. <laughs> All this food. And, we, and you know it was the best hamburger I've ever had in my whole life? No, really. It's the best hamburger I've ever had in my life. My wife and I is the best anything I could ever have in my whole life. And um, God is so good. And so, sorry, forgive me for a minute. So I just take him back there for a moment. Um, so... I totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> I don't know if that's ever happened yet. You guys are like, it happens all the time. Well, it was, it was beautiful in that it was a week long. And so the idea was there was an invitation and a preparation that had to go into that. And it's interesting that Mary, Jesus's mother is going to have some interaction within this wedding. And I'm, I'm not saying she was um, family. She could have been family. It's very well possible. I don't know. I, I've studied this many different times, went through it with a comb many different times. I do think she was either family or she was some type of uh, helper in preparation for what was going on. Because in knowing Jewish culture, a host and a guest, there was a lot of attention given to that. If you were a guest, you were really well taken care of. In the Middle East, even today, you were very well taken care of. But as a host, you went to the nth degree to make sure your guest was taken care of. And you would didn't, and if you were a guest invited to a wedding, you didn't just presume upon yourself to get up and to go and start to 
take uh, a control or action. You wouldn't do that. It would be highly disrespectful to the host because the host would say, no, 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 sit, eat, relax, enjoy. You're here to be uh, taken care of, loved upon that way, right? So we find Mary taking a very interesting role. Maybe she was like some kind of wedding a coordinator to the situation, or maybe she was a family member. I, I don't know, and I can't say for certain, but something more is going on here other than just she's attending a wedding because she's assuming more than what a normal a man or woman in this particular case would have unless you are a host or some type of service you're providing as a part of this wedding. So the reason that I'm bringing this up is because it's the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. Well, of course, because God's timing is perfect. He knows he's going to be, he was invited to this wedding and he's going to plan to attend that wedding. So he's making his way there. And as he's making away, it's not a loss for time. This is what I'm trying to point out. It's very important that God has ministry business, if I can say it that way, along the way. It's not just, oh, I'm going to a wedding, but let me just be thinking about getting to the wedding. It's no, how, Lord, do you want to use me in the process of where I know I need to get? Because Jesus Christ is always on time. He was on time for Calvary. He didn't miss the cross. He was on time for the cross, wasn't he? And yet I think about how many stops along the way he made healing, helping, touching, loving, encouraging. God is never late. And if we walk in the spirit and obedience, we won't be late either. We'll be right where God wants us at every moment. So I'm reminded by that. And he sees Philip. And he says, follow me. And now Philip was from the state of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, again, healthy sheep reproduce. I know some of you brought your friends today. You reproduce. It's healthy sheep do that. And also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And then Nathanael said to him, can anything good from, come from Nazareth? What, what is that immediately that's happening? He's shutting it down. You see that? He's just, what? I mean, he's standing right there. Like, maybe he could even overhear it. Anything good come out of Nazareth? What's Philip say? What's Philip's rebut to that? Oh, you're right. You know what? I'm going to just, I'm going to sit silent here. I tried. I tried to tell them the love of Jesus. I tried to give them a track. I got shut down. I'm going home. That's it. No. He doesn't do that. What does he do? Come and see. He casts off the objection. He casts off the objection. Come and see. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Jesus sees this. Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there's no deceit. He's a very honest man, is what Jesus is saying. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, oh, you, you heard that? Yeah, I heard that. When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, I know a lot of you like the people watching here, right? I like the people watch. Maybe even today, some of you are watching as other people came in the building or the church, and you're kind of watching where they're sitting. If somebody walked up over to you and said, I saw you come in, I saw where you were sitting, and in you there is a man or a woman where there is no guile, where there is no, uh, you're an honest person. More than likely, and I pray no one would do this, you're not going to turn to them and go, Messiah, you're here. I want you to see what, no, I mean, really, that's what happened. That's what, I mean, Nathaniel is very interesting. I, I, what does he do? 
Well, how does Jesus respond to that? I mean, how do you know me? He says, I watched you. I saw you come over here. And Nathaniel answered and said to him, Rabbi, teacher. He gives him a distinction. You are the son of God. You are the image bearer. Uh, there's something that happened there. We, we don't get it. It leaps off the page into my heart through the spirit. But there's something that happened there. He knew when he met Jesus, you are the image bearer of the father. You are God. It's not because he just people watched. And he was like, wow, you're good at watching people. No, no, there's something more. He says, you're the king of Israel. He actually connects two things to this point. One, he connects the fact that God is, Jesus is the image bearer of the father, a direct representation of that in the human flesh incarnation. And the second thing he does is he connects, you are the Messiah, the long-awaited one, the anointed one that was going to come. You're him. As a matter of fact, you're both. You're king. You're King Jesus. You're the king of Israel. You're the king of the world. And Jesus answered them, because I said to you, so Jesus is kind of like, kind of what I did, you know, because I told you where you were sitting or waiting. He says, oh no. You're going to see far greater things than these. As a matter of fact, if Jesus wanted, he could have said it in just a few short days. Because you're invited to a wedding with me. And you're going to see me do something that no one else has ever seen. John's going to refer to this as the first of uh, the seven, well, we call it the miracles. He'll call it the first of the seven signs. John will refer to that in chapter 2. But he's declaring this. I saw you under a fig tree. Do you believe you will see greater things than these? And he said, no, most surely I say to you hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Notice it says, upon the Son of Man. That's really, really important. I bring that out, and I'll let you be Bereans. You pray about this. But the last time I read about angels ascending and descending was all the way back in Genesis chapter 28. And it happened to be in Bethel, the house of God, where Jacob... Remember, had a stone, put his head, was sleep. Hold on. Turn, hold your finger here. Turn to Genesis chapter 28 with me. I could tell by some of the expressions here this morning. We're going to turn to Genesis 28. Will you look at verse 10 with me, please? And just to drop us into context, again, he's going to take a vow here at Bethel. Um... He had already escaped from Esau at this point. Genesis chapter 28, verse 10. It says, Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. Again, he was bunking down. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it in his head. And he laid down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven, and their angels of God were ascending and descending, what's it say? On it. Can I say upon it? Would I be grammatically inaccurate if I said on it or upon it? It's very interesting the words that God is using here in the Hebrew and the Septuagint connecting the two in my, again, you be Bereans, my opinion. What we're actually seeing here is that in this dream, this, there's a ladder that was established that was used to bring angels Ascending and descending back and forth. Yeah? Kind of a way of coming back and forth between the two. But what I also see, if I turn back to John, I find it very interesting. It says, most assuredly, I say hereafter, you shall see heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending, but this time 
It's not upon a ladder, or is it? It's upon the Son of Man. Is God trying to communicate to us that he is that ladder to humanity? That there's no one that can go to the Father but through the Son? That he is the way, the truth, and the life? 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 and 12 tells us that if you have the Son, you know, you can come upon the Father, you have eternal life. If you do not have the Son, you do not have eternal life. There is no other way. There is no pluralism. No matter how nice that sounds, no matter how lovely that sounds, that there's multiple ways to get to heaven, multiple beliefs, multiple ideologies, and the Bible's very exclusive, and so is Jesus Christ. There is one way. And that's real love to say that, friends. That's not wrong. That's not wrong to tell somebody that. Maybe somebody's a Buddhist or Hindu or, or um, a, a Muslim or, or a, a Jewish. If you really love them and God allows you to invest in them and you, you have an opportunity, you should tell them the truth. But you should do it with love and grace. You're not to Bible thump them. There's no reason to do that. But we certainly shouldn't just keep this wonderful news to ourselves. We're reproducers. And so I believe here, he said, most surely I say hereafter. Hereafter. Why is so significant hereafter too? Because of the work of Christ and what he's going to do. He is the ladder. Do you realize every single human being is going to be, unless, forgive me, Lord, unless he should come right now and we are raptured, every single human being is going to be resurrected. Every one of us. We're going to die and be resurrected, unless he should come and rapture us. Some will be resurrected to life in heaven, eternity with Jesus, and some will be resurrected to life separately, and you want to call it life, it's really death, but not death the way we would understand it, not annihilationism, but separation from God for all of eternity in a place called hell. But that is the fact. It's one or the other, and every human being is resurrected. And so when he says hereafter, I believe he's also including the idea that because of the work on the cross, it's not a misunderstanding, but it's a definite rejection of someone rejecting Jesus that would end up separated from him. Because even the angels in the, in the same, you know, as a matter of fact, when Jesus brings us back in Revelation 19, you know, on horses, right? We get to ride horses. When we come back, who are we coming back with? Jesus. It's always about Jesus. Well, look with me in our time here on chapter 2. He says, on the third day, in other words, Jesus is the latter of what I, what I was effectively, believe the Lord's showing us here. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. So that's interesting. Normally, you certainly don't want to be late, but she was already there. Which, again, gives me an idea either she's a family member or... I mean, I understand it's, 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 several, it's several miles because Cana's in the north of um, Israel and they were in Nazareth at the time. So it definitely would have been maybe a day to, you know, um, it's several miles away. It could have been a couple day journey, maybe at that most. But she's already there and it was, says the third day there was a wedding. So two days had already passed by. Jesus was making his way, but she was already there. And I just find that really interesting because, again, I think it explains that either she was a family member to, some, to the couple that was getting married or she was some kind of, and I guess I'm using our term for it today, a wedding coordinator or something was going on in her role. Um, because if, if, you, if somebody invited you to a wedding and, and they said to you, it's, um, it's, it's next Friday 
at uh, 3 o'clock and you're traveling a, a distance, several miles, and I understand we have cars, but even if you're going to walk it, um, are you going to show up on Monday? Unless you call ahead or you say, hey, especially because in those days in the Middle East, if you come to stay, they're going to feed you. They're going to really take care of you. It's not like, oh, by the way, and I'm going to bring money and I'm going to buy my own things. Highly offensive. That would have been highly offensive to your host. So there's people coming. You generally would wait until you were closer to the time of the wedding. Maybe you come in a Thursday, right, if it's on a Friday or a Wednesday or something. But she's there. She's, she was already there. She's, she's the mother of Jesus was there when he gets there, which is a couple days later. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, a woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six waters or six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it, and when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water known, the master of the feast called the who? Bridegroom, underline that in your Bible. We'll come back to that in a minute. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, the in fear, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning uh, of signs, Jesus did in Cana. Again, he calls us the first of the seven signs, John the, John the apostle of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum, his, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. So what's going on? Okay, the scene. Let the video play in your head. They're now at a wedding. Jesus has got there. Mary is already there, either helping out or setting up or doing something to that effect. Uh, Jesus shows up. His disciples are invited. The first thing I notice is Jesus accepts invitations. If you invite Jesus to come wherever you are, whatever you're doing, and you invite him with a humble heart to come into your heart, Jesus will come into your heart. He will meet you where you are at. He's not looking for you to arrive or be perfect to then meet you. No, Jesus Christ accepts invitations. He'll meet you where you are today, and he'll sanctify you to his perfection because that's what he does. And so he meets them. He accepts this invitation. I love that. Um, this is beautiful. This is God's institution, marriage. He certainly is going to uh, come there. It's his design. He's going to attend it. It's the, one of the things that survived uh, the, the fall. It's one of the only things that survived the fall. As far as a, a sacrament, or if you could say it that way, or, or an institution, better said, maybe not a sacrament, but an institution, forgive me, to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, what, what is Mary getting involved for? Normally, it would be, again, it would be highly irregular and possibly inappropriate as an attendee of this wedding to say, oh, again, our culture is slightly different. But remember, this is the same culture that if you went into a dinner or a meal and you were invited and you took a certain table and that was not your table, they would come to you and ask you to do what? Take a table in the back. So Jesus always said, isn't it better to come and take the table at the back and then be invited to the front? Different culture. Please understand that. So in the culture here, 
It had been, I believe, it, it's highly offensive to, uh, as the host there and the people that are getting married, to, for Mary, as I, I think, you know, Italian mothers, I know we like, you know, they like to get involved. Oh, let me help here. Let me do this. Let me do that. And I'm sure, you know, but it would have been highly offensive to the host if she had done that, if she didn't have a participant role, either as a coordinator or as a family member that was then considered part of the host too, maybe. Okay. And again, I'm not trying to read too much into this, but God brings it out that way. And it says, they have no wine. Now, this is a big problem in those days. This is seven days, you know, this is a week-long wedding. And they're out of wine. And this would have been a huge embarrassment to this new couple. A huge embarrassment to the parents. You think about how much weddings cost, right? Even if you do it in your backyard, it's still very expensive. And it's beautiful when it's in the backyard. And it's simple and it's nice. But you're feeding people sometimes, or even if they're, you're providing something to drink, it's, it's very expensive, right? Especially if you have 50 people, 70, 100. Some people have hundreds of people come to this. And at this time in that culture, you would have invited many people from your village. So you would have had quite a number of attendees, and it was a thought of an honor to attend the wedding as well. And it's not just one day. Again, it's multiple days, okay? And so there's a big problem here, and... Um, it's a big deal because it, it would bring shame and embarrassment to the couple, the parents, and everyone else. Well, Mary gets up and she looks to Jesus and, and says, uh, they have no wine. She brings this to Jesus' attention. He says, Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, this is not, <laughs> if my son, I was, first service, my boys were, I, I, my boys would never come up to Lisa or my wife and go, woman. Uh, I don't think it would end well for them. I have a feeling there'd be a smack. And now if Lisa didn't do it, I think I'd be following right along, right? There'd be, who are you talking to like that? You're not talking to my wife that way. So I think there would be a very, you know, we're biblical people. We would handle it appropriately. Uh, I assure you that he would not continue in that line of conversation. Um, and, and I don't say that because I don't love my boys. It's because my wife is my helpmate and she's to be honored and respected. She's the daughter of the king. And I look at her as the daughter of the king. And my boys look at mom that way too. And my mother the same way. Um, she's with the Lord, so she's dancing with the king. But what, she, what he means here also in, in woman, in that time it would, have, it would have been respect, kind of like a title. It wouldn't have been disrespectful. Uh, sons, uh, daughters in here, uh, don't go home and call your mom woman. Uh, it's not going to end well for you either probably. <laughs> Um, uh, it, but in those days, it was not disrespectful. Ishta, in the Hebrew, it would be a woman you're identifying. It's not disrespectful in the Hebrew. Um, but he, he does say, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not come. The idea is it's drawing the attention that it's not my time yet. Not my time what? To manifest the miracles and to begin to do the work that my father has sent me to do. It's not time. When does that time actually occur? It begins with the triumphal entry. It, remember, it begins with the triumphal entry. That's when his truth, certainly miracles and signs have had to happen before that. But that was, the triumphal entry is the beginning of Passion Week, where he is going to Calvary to die for your sins and my sins, for the sins of the whole world, whoever will believe upon him. And his mother said to the servants, I, I love this, I, I really love this. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. That is the best advice anyone in the world could ever give you. Whatever Jesus says, do it. Just don't hear me here. Do it. Whatever Jesus says, do it. And don't wait to do it. Do it now. Right? And this is strong. This is a very strong word from Mary. And it's an excellent counsel. Now, well, there was 
Now there were set there six water uh, pots of stone according to the matter of purification. So somewhere between 150 to 180 gallons of water, um, basically you would have had. The, the idea between the pur purification here um, would have been the washing um, in the Jewish culture, culture custom, from the elbow or just slightly above the elbow all the way down to the top digit, they would have done that. And it would have been, everybody who was attending would have come and that would have been washed and that would have been washed and that would have made you ceremonial clean to able to be partakers because there would have been family style food where you're dipping your hand, you're doing different. And so it was, it was the ceremonial purification. So these water pots had been emptied out, but not completely. Which that gives us an idea because you think of 180 gallons of water, again, over multiple days, and it was to be used for how many guests they have. You know, we don't know exactly, but, but certainly a good number for you to 180 gallons of water. That's a lot of water, okay? Um, so it says uh, containing 20, 30 gallons a piece. So possibly even, yeah, up to 180. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. Now, this is, this is really good. Why water? What's going on? This is, this is sort of a ministry principle here. I kind of pointed it out to first service. It's a ministry principle. He expects us to do what we can do, and then he does the rest. We can only do what we can do, but then that's obedience, but then Jesus does the rest of that. Okay, do you see that? It's, it's a really good ministry principle. You fill the water pots, but you can't make them wine. You can't make the wine unless God tells you to make the wine. God will do the rest here. He says, also fill them to the brim. Why is that so significant that they're filled to the top? Because it's a picture of complete obedience. There's not any room. It was perfect, complete. Why? Because when there's complete obedience, there's room for complete blessing. If you do a halfway thing, you end up with a real, you know, blessing, second best, not God's very best. He's drawing their attention to this. He's drawing our attention to this. This is how the Lord works. That's why it's a good ministry principle. He's not looking for half of our hearts, my heart. He wants all of my heart. He wants all of my obedience. And he's going, and I, I'm expectant that he's going to bless according to his perfect will in that. That blessing may not be something that earthly is something I desire, but it's not about me. It's what does the Lord want to do and be glorified through it. Amen. But he's going to do a complete, perfect blessing. And he said, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Some of you heard me say in the past, only what's poured in can be poured out. You've heard me say that over the years. This is the passage that I've, I've pulled that from. Because he took what was, he didn't say, well, just fill it and then leave me a little room so I can kind of make some type of mixture out of this. There is no mixture. Christ takes what is full to the blame and he uses it perfectly for his pleasure, his will, and his desires. And as part of that is when he pours into me and he fills me completely, I'm then able to pour out. But unless I'm poured in, I have nothing to possibly give. I have nothing of myself that's worth value to give aside from Christ. And so I, again, I'm a good ministry principle here. And they took it. And when the master of the feasts had tasted the water, again, obedience, right? It doesn't make sense. Can you imagine if somebody came up to you today and says, uh, you know, we're at this wedding and it's a day and um, we run out of the high sea fruit punch. Uh, I'd like you to go and um, fill up a couple jugs of water on the table and uh, we're going to serve it and everything's going to be okay. Come on, be honest. You'd look at them. I even did it. My head already tilted. I'd be like, you know, what are we doing here? You know, what? 
You know, he's not asking for me to understand. He didn't ask them to understand. He didn't ask them to have an opinion on it. He didn't ask them to do anything other than obey and trust God for the consequences. And that's always the beautiful relationship of how God works and how he blesses. And so they had no understanding. They just obeyed in beautiful obedience, but it took faith to do that. And they tested the water that made, sorry, and he had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, there's the testimony, and the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Now it's important. What does wine usually signify outside of Passover? One of the, one of the cups of wine at Passover does not signify this, but the remainder do. What does the cup of wine throughout all of your scripture, you can go back to Nehemiah and joy, always joy. What does leaven signify in scripture? Sin. We know there's certain things in scripture that God uses over and over again as examples for us. And wine is always connoted with joy. Now I find this very true. He says the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Why did he call the bridegroom? Because he didn't know Jesus did the miracle, so he wasn't aware of that. So he called the bridegroom because the bridegroom is the responsible party at the, at the wedding feast. He's the one that he believes all things come through or comes from. Who's our bridegroom? Jesus. Who gives us perfect joy? Jesus. It's always been pointing to him. Our joy comes from Christ, from Jesus. Not from self, not from our circumstances, good, bad, or indifferent. All joy comes from Jesus. And they go to the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sends out good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine. You have kept, it's the opposite of the world, is what he's saying. Jesus is always the best. Everything he touches is better and best. And that's why whatever's poured into us that comes out that's from God is better than how it was originally found. And the same thing with my heart. Every time I hear the word of God, every time we hear it gathered, I walk away more complete and whole in Christ than when I first arrived because of his word. Because he washes me, he sanctifies me, he teaches me. And that's what he's saying. He brings joy. And it says, this is the beginning of the signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went to Capernaum, he and his mother, his brothers, his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Again, Jesus is the source of our joy. Jesus is the source of our salvation. And I just think it's beautiful. Again, he took this time to protect these people from the embarrassment all while he was making his way to die on the cross. What won't he do for you and I? He's so good. He's so good to us. Our reading will be in Luke chapter 22 for communion here. So just turn your, your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. We're going to look at verse 14. The musicians will come forward. Some in front of your seats or in the backs, you should find these little cups. This is for those that believe in Jesus Christ, and he's, their, he's our Lord and Savior. This is for you. I want to encourage you to go ahead and open the top of it right now and open the bottom. Otherwise, when I pray, you'll do it, and uh, it'll be quite chattery.
So this is the last month that we'll be using these. Next month, we're going back to passing the plate, and I love that. Where are our wafers? And, our, and then we get to take our cups and in unity all together. Some of you weren't here prior to uh, the COVID where we moved to these, but we do everything in unity as a body because it's the body of Christ. He's the shepherd. He's the priest, and we do everything in unity. And so when we're done with communion next month, we'll look at each other, and we'll crack it together. In unity, we'll break the cup together. It's a beautiful time. I love the way it sounds. It's just awesome. Well, now that most of you have opened up your elements there, I, dare, I turn our attention to verse 14. Before we, I read this, um, in 1 Corinthians, he tells us very clearly that we are not to come to the love feast hungry or to, to be fed with this wafer um, or to come with any other purpose. And we're to examine our own hearts and to seek the Lord if there's something that has created distance or if there's something we're wrestling with or things that we have been, that have been occupying our hearts. Anything between our heart and God, by definition, is idolatry. It's time to lay those idols down. But it's important to take the time to come to the throne room of God, to come to the altar of the Lord and seek him privately. And so we're just going to take a few minutes to do that right now. You'll, you'll hear eventually some music in the background. If you're still praying, you pray. You talk to your father. Remember, his voice is the only voice that matters. He didn't pay attention to Mary's voice initially when Mary said this. No, he was more interested in his father's voice. This is not, it's not the appointed time yet. You listen to your father's voice. You talk to your father. And then when the Lord should lead you and you, if the music, then you want to sing along, we will sing together. Okay? But you take this time. Let the Lord examine your hearts. You examine your hearts and lay all those things down that we come to that throne. We come to Jesus holy, pure, and without distractions.
Jesus tells us in verse 14. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. They said to him, with fer- he said to him, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Without blood, there is no sacrifice. Life is in the blood. And Jesus didn't say, with this cup and everything else you can bring, in the life you've lived, and the goodness you have or don't have. But he said, this cup, that's symbolically talking about a new covenant that was ushered in and created by my shed blood, by the Christ shed blood. He said, this is what removes sin. And he tells us this so that we don't have to walk around in this life fearful, ashamed, separated, discouraged, broken, defeated, but that we can walk a victorious life in Christ Jesus, knowing that he has desired to save every one of us. He saved me from me. And he desires to save as many that will come on to him. Everybody who invites him, he's going to answer the invitation. He also tells us that it's not sin in what you've done yesterday or just what you've done today. But it's our sin, past, present, and future. So that you could receive the fullness of his grace. Grace upon grace. Not with compromise, but in the fullness of truth. And that's also a gift he wanted to give us, that assurance, that hope, that confidence, that guarantee. And so when we partake of this right now, we're not just thanking God for what he's done by redeeming us. He's done that. We're not just thanking him for the resurrection because if he should, we should die before he comes, he's going to do that and bring us to him. But we're also looking to the future coming that I believe is soon and very soon. To rapture us, to harpazo us, to bring us out of this life, to newness, to that glorified body. Remember he said he was glorified. To the body he has for us that will then be glorified in him, by him, and through him. So when we partake of this, not only are we testifying to the truth, but we're being reproducers. So let's reproduce together, amen? Let's partake. Father, we know that um, there's nothing we can do to ever deserve this. We thank you for your sacrifice. And we look, Lord, to your soon coming. We love you, Jesus Christ, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Let's partake. Thank you, Father.
If you're able to stand and you'd like to stand, we invite you to stand with us as we close this song in worship, bringing all to Jesus, giving him all our hearts, letting him fill us to the brim so that we can pour out to a lost and dying world that needs the hope we have in Christ Jesus alone. I love you guys.